Welcome to another episode of Health Creators. This is Liv, and I'm joined here today by Gandalf Finca, founder at Mika. So, Gandalf, can you give us an elevator pitch of Mika? Sure. Mika is a digital therapeutics platform in oncology. So, uh, we help cancer patients go through therapy all the way from diagnosis to reintegration um, uh, aftercare or the end of life. Um, with the platform that's been used by more than 100,000 patients by now, it's clinically validated. We ran a bunch of clinical trials, RCTs, um, um, certified as a medical device, uh, and we commercialized this with pharma partners. Uh, we do this on a global level. Um, uh, we have uh, large pharma companies that we have great partnerships with, um, and uh, we're at a stage where I think um, further expansion and further build out of the product um, uh, is happening. We're a team of 50, 60 people uh, based out of Berlin presence in the UK, moving to the US, that's where we are. And when did you start Mika? In 2017. So my uh, co-founder and I um, both had people with cancer in their lives. I had worked in um, healthcare consulting before uh, and have a deep interest in technology and healthcare. So my everybody in my family is a doctor, so I was a little bit predisposed to go in that direction, I guess. Um, and uh, yeah, that brought me to bring, uh, to think about, you know, are there everyday technologies that we can use to improve outcomes? Right? It's not always the newest drug that costs hundreds of thousands of mm. dollars. And I think that's something that became pretty clear in oncology. Um, a couple of years after we started, there was a study that came out by a guy called Ethan Besh. A lot of people know him in the oncology space, uh, who proved that just by monitoring symptoms, uh, you could significantly improve the outcomes if you then react appropriately. So it wasn't even a new drug or anything. It was more because cancer patients are not in the hospital all the time. So nobody's watching after them all the time. But by just watching what um, symptoms they're experiencing and reacting to them, you could significantly improve outcomes. And so this, there were lots of data points that came along the way. We always had this uh, hypothesis that, um, A, we think the psychology plays a really important role. So um, it's not only about the drug or medical treatment, basically. Yeah. Um, uh, but it's also about um, holistic well-being that plays a role. And there are studies that show that um, nutrition, exercise, uh, and things like that play a really important role, and the mental health of patients as well. So that's what we focused on. Right? So we see yeah. ourselves as a, uh, as a companion, not interfering with the medical treatment, but trying to make the best life for a patient outside the medical treatment that they're getting. And why, why did you decide to focus on um, the kind of anxiety psychology component of cancer rather than um, discover a new therapeutic? Uh, um, I think it's a highly underrated aspect. Mm -hmm. uh, so about a third of all cancer patients actually develop a diagnosable psychological disorder or, or yeah. a, a disease or so depression, uh, anxiety disorders, etc. So it's, it's a really, really strong uh, impact that they're experiencing. Yeah. Um, and the other two thirds also are, of course, psychologically affected. I think everybody yeah. who has known someone with cancer can relate to that. Uh, that's the first point. And the second one is that um, it, it's not addressed at all in the system. Right? There are not enough psycho-oncologists in this world to ever treat these people. Um, it's, it's also not the same as psychotherapy you would normally get if, you, uh, if you're in normal psychotherapeutic tre um, treatment settings. Uh, and so we found there was really a big unmet need in that domain that fits yeah. really well into um, or that's absolutely needed in this uh, oncology, um, let's say, 
overall industry, right? There's a, it's a huge industry from a pharmaceutical perspective uh, and generally from a healthcare system perspective. Uh, and so, but this is a missing piece that we think can unlock uh, really superior outcomes compared to where we are. I see. Um, and like, how does it how does it work with the family members like Mika? Because I feel like the a big component of um, someone going through cancer is also how it impacts you know the family members, which you were one of, and well, why you started the company. Yeah. So I think that that's a really important topic, and I'm sure that. So there is more on our pipeline roadmap to do in, in yeah. that direction. I think that there are two sides to this. One is sort of what does the patient, him or herself, do uh, to actually in, involve their yeah. social setting into this, right? So it's partially on them, uh, but then partially that's also on on this uh, uh, surrounding circle. Uh, how can they contribute, right? And, yeah. and I think uh, we're addressing the former part. Um, in terms of, you know, we have courses and contents on how do I actually talk to my family about this, how to mm. involve them, what can I ask them to do, what are important things to, to um, organize, uh, etc. cetera. Um, uh, the other part in terms of what can others do is partially in there. And we know that actually uh, a few of our users are not the patients, but our loved ones. So they would use it for mm. the patients, basically, be it because of age or be it because they want to know things themselves, right? Yeah. And, and, you know, if you think about things like a physical exercise or or um, a recipe of what's healthy to cook in that in, uh, yeah. uh, in that time, uh, that's not something that's restricted to the patient necessarily, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, the exercise you can do together, the cooking you can do together or for the patient, right? And, and so I think there's um, uh, there's lots of elements in there already, but primarily the product and also the intended use uh, as a medical device uh, is for the patient. I see, and is. Is part of this also, when you're talking about the kind of psychology component, um, how important is being positive in the outcomes? Like, are there studies to show that being positive about your um, prognosis essentially improves the chances that you survive? Yes, I think there is early evidence on that. And, and I think we're in, in the fairly early days of understanding mm. the biology behind it. Yeah. And we're pretty excited about that and we want to go deeper in that sort of yeah. biological um, aspect of this, you know, how are stress hormones contributing to tumor mm. growth, right? There's a body of literature behind that um, and, and we're very interested to, to explore that further and see how we can, um, you know, forward-looking address, let's say, more than the quality of life side. Maybe there's um, even the actual cancer outcomes that we can affect with what we do. And I think that's uh, um, a really exciting prospect to, to work towards. Um, take, take me back to 2017, right? Sure. So you start this company, um, you've worked in consulting, but this is your first time starting a company and um, first time building a product, I guess. Um, how did you approach you know, getting started on this. I know, like, you, you said you had members of your family with cancer, and um, I guess those were maybe your first users, or how did you structure it? Yeah, so we did um, two sides of research initially. One is sort of, you know, um, the theory, right? What's there in terms yeah. of psycho-oncology? We have a, uh, a wonderful partner with at the University of Leipzig, University of Leipzig, uh, Professor Amina Toyakov, who is one of the absolute leading experts in the field, and, and, yeah. and she was um, uh, 
very positive about what we're doing and like the idea. And so, so we had her, um, you know, discussing ideas with her uh, uh, very, very early on. Um, and then um, on the other side, of course, is talking to patients, understanding what are their needs actually, what are they looking at. And even there, there's a body of literature, of course, on patient needs and unmet needs um, out there. So we, the, the two things we, we, um, we started off with, and I think the, the very first product that we had in the market was called Mira, M-I-R-A, so a different brand. It's another story how that came to be, but um, uh, we, uh, it was a web-based uh, product and it was um, basically curating content because the, um, one of the problems uh, that you face as a patient early on is that there's so much information out there. So it's yeah. not the problem that there's no information. The question is what's valid information, what is reliable and what's actionable for me. Um, uh, and what's the right one for me? Right? Yeah. So, uh, you know, not everything's the same for everyone. Um, and it doesn't help you a lot if you read about, oh, you should really eat a fiber-rich diet, right? I mean, most people don't know what that is. Um, uh, but it helps if you get the, a recipe that entails that, right? Yeah. And so, um, but it might not be the right thing to eat if you're in a specific phase of the treatment. Yeah. Um, so we started off with the hypothesis of, you know, you need to, we, we don't have to actually reproduce all the content. There's so much content out there. Why don't we start with curating that? Yeah. So we had a product um, out that, that did that. Of course, it's very inconsistent in terms of, you know, the tone of voice. Mm. Um, it took uh, the patients out of the platform into those uh, um, external links and pages that we curated. So I think from a user experience, that was not a great product at all. But it... it um, uh, allowed us to, to see and to test whether there's an, an, a need or an acceptance of what we're doing. Right? Do, do cancer patients even want to do something digitally when they're uh, in this very, very difficult phase? Because they have, you know, worries, very, very big worries in their lives. Yeah. And, and, you know, maybe not the only thing is uh, what can I cook tomorrow, right? And it's not the, the, the most important thing. But we found that there, we did a, a, a feasibility study early on at the University of Leipzig and in at the Charité in Berlin, where we could show that there was a real um, need and, and acceptance of a digital technology in this space. So from there, we took took that forward to go into, okay, we probably need to develop our own content to do this. Right? Mm. So all the content you would see in Mika uh, is developed and owned by us. Um, we took it forward to um, have a consistent tone of voice as part of that. Um, yeah. We moved it to uh, native app platforms, which allows for very different functionality. Um, and one thing that, that came on in pretty early is that um, it wasn't only about content, but to understand what the needs of patients are, you need to understand a bit more of the situation. So not only what kind of cancer they're, uh, uh, they're suffering from, but also what kind of treatment are they getting? Yeah. You know, maybe how old they are, because you know, for some people, let's say reproductive health is uh, important, right? You, you want to uh, maybe freeze eggs if you're a young woman. Um, uh, you maybe, uh, if you're in the working age, you still have career perspective to, to follow, but that's not the same for everyone. Right? So age plays a role, um, and, and so on. And so I think um, Mika allows now to really personalize mm. around the profile of the patient. Right. And, and that's where we also invested quite strongly into uh, technology. So we use machine, learn, machine learning to, to recommend the right content. Yeah. Right. So think of it as in Netflix, right? When you 
look for the next show, it will recommend things based on what you've done before, yeah. what people like you have liked, uh, etc. So um, uh, we use um, sophisticated algorithms in the background to try to figure out in this very large library that we created by mm. now, what's the right thing that we want to recommend to the patient. And we can show that this works really well. Because I think that's actually a key thing. Cancer is different um, from, from many other uh, diseases and, and particularly also other chronic diseases in that it's highly, highly individual in terms of how pe patients mm -hmm. go through treatment. Right? So uh, you have tumor boards that make decisions and you know, they may not even be made the same decisions in everywhere inside the country. Um, even though you have the same guidelines, um, you have uh, constantly new drugs uh, coming to the market um, and, and treatment paradigms changing. So um, we wanted to really make sure that personalization is a key aspect yeah. uh, and, and really, really happens. And I think that's a little bit different in, in other diseases where you have sort of more standard treatment that are used by a very, very large portion of the patients. Right? So you could build a, a program for that. Yeah. But I think in cancer, it doesn't work to say, Oh, we're going to have that 12-week program for breast cancer, and that's it, right? So, and we tested that. With, it probably works for some patients, and, and maybe for many patients, um, but then you're limited to yeah. a breast cancer, which is already a huge uh, indication, uh, and at the same time, it, it won't fit with everyone in there. I, I think this idea of new treatment paradigms is interesting for the patient aspect because at the moment, there's not really a way to communicate new research in a um, like understandable manner, right? Um, so I've literally seen patient groups um, on Facebook that focus on translating CTGov because right now when we talk about um, scientific literature or clinical research, it's never in layman terms, right? And layman terms is defined as like year five level science. Um, it, this is like way beyond. Like even for uh, someone with a science PhD, let's say, to, to understand what the current standard of care for any given cancer is, is quite difficult. So it's part of, um, I wonder if it's part of what you're trying to build on the educational side is also like a translation engine for that? Yeah, I think um, a little bit to differentiate. So I think our main role is not to suggest the right treatment because we think this is done and should be done by physicians. Right? So yeah. I think as a patient, you definitely have the right to understand it and you are, you are actually the decision maker. Yeah. But um, I think to explain all the details of, of every treatment um, is very difficult for us because we don't know enough about the patient. So we don't have the exact diagnosis from yeah. the, uh, on the gene level, which the physician in some cases uh, has. Um, and, and so I think we would have to explain everything to the patient. And I think yeah. it's really hard for them to then make sense, even if they understand everything. Um, so I think that I would, I would take that a little bit apart, but I think in generally, you know, sort of how, how, how does a surgery work, right? What are the possible outcomes? Right? How, how would you possibly wake up afterwards? Uh, I think that's really important for patients to understand. And we know that when patients leave a physician's office, they won't remember 80% of what uh, the mm -hmm. physicians told them. So there is this really, really big gap in terms of knowledge on the patient side. Um, and partially is um, 
partially this is caused by, um, let's say, communication differences in, uh, mm -hmm. between uh, yeah. healthcare professionals and patients. But it's, um, uh, it's also the stress um, uh, situation um, that the patient is in, of course. That's hard to process any information. And so what, what we do there, um, we actually had yesterday a really interesting um, discussion in the, in the office on our efforts to take everything to a level mm. of plain English uh, or plain language or yeah. easy to understand language. And these are terms that are clearly defined, so I'm not saying them just <laughs> like, like that. They are, yeah. uh, there's, uh, there's a lot, whole science between you know, how readable is a text and what, what are the scores um, uh, in, in that dimension. And I think that's actually key if you consider that um, in, in Germany, um, almost half of the people have a only level one or level two literacy mm. level. Yeah. So these people would not understand a sophisticated newspaper article. So, and, and so this is way below um, uh, college level, level education. Yeah. And you can think that you know, any scientific paper that's out there cannot be understood by half of the people. Right? And mm. even the other half, not all of them would understand it. Right? So, yeah. so I think it's, it's really upon us, um, and upon us, but actually the whole healthcare community that's communicating with patients um, to ensure that um, um, patients really understand it. I mean, it's a, it's a legal requirement that patients have understood the consequences of the decisions. Right? When you yeah. start chemotherapy, you sign something that you are accepting all these possible side effects, etc. Uh, and I'm not sure, or I'm pretty sure that uh, most, that of, them most of them, yeah. many of them, don't even get a chance to fully understand everything mm. that's in there. And that's a lot to ask also, because some of this is very, very complex. Um, uh, and maybe you're asking too much from healthcare professionals, because it's not yeah. like they're not busy, right? Uh, we have more and more patients, and we have fewer and fewer uh, um, uh, healthcare professionals. Uh, and so I think that other systems like digital technologies can contribute to that because, you know, what we do, we, you can scale. You can just have another user and that costs you cents in terms of a server, uh, but nothing else really. So you have this personalization component to, to Mika, right? Um, and then you, you don't actually interface with their patient records, but um, how do you help them figure out like what their treatment even is? Like, I know that you don't recommend the treatment, but if they have received something from their physician and in the moment they were like super shocked by, by their diagnosis, like how would you help them actually understand that? So it depends on what it is, um, but generally we, we do explain a lot of the treatment path, right? Yeah. Um, but I think this is sort of um, a, a question of level of granularity uh, that you yeah. go into, right? So we wouldn't go and say, oh, this drug has compared to this other drug in a trial where, you know, side effect was that, but mm. uh, whatever overall survival or progression-free survival was that difference, right? So yeah. we wouldn't go um, to that level, but we would say, you know, um, uh, this group of chemotherapy drugs, you know, that's typically what you get before surgery when you're in this stage. And, and so these are the side effects that most of them entail. Uh, this is how you can deal with it. And I, mm. again, I think we're trying to help patients to live the best possible life with the treatment that they're getting, rather than giving them you know, 
like, all the information no, no to make a treatment decision. No one cares about the macro scientific effects, right? Like you just yeah. want to know how it impacts you. So that kind of makes sense. Exactly, but but I think yeah. it's still also mm. um, it's a it's a very touchy or or thin line between you know empowering the, the patient mm. um, to be a competent decision maker uh, in the treatment uh, without having the ability to give them all the information about it. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. you know, you, we are talking about a class of drug, but we wouldn't necessarily talk about individual drugs, right? Unless there's something super special about them. Um, uh, and so I think it's, uh, we, we found our sweet spot outside actually the treatment stuff, because there's so much for patients to worry about. Yeah. For the drugs and all of that, they can actually call and talk to their uh, um, treating physicians. Right, that that's the person to talk to, and, and that person should know mm -hmm. everything about it. But physicians do not know necessarily really well what to exercise, um, uh, or where do I get a disability voucher? Uh, uh, yeah. uh, and, and, and what's my um, whatever legal requirement to inform my employer about things? And so, so the, all these things are coming towards the patient, um, and I think the, the the medical treatment side of it is. is um, to a large degree, um, on healthcare professionals to to. Um, Do you have to inform your employer? Sorry. I, I mean, at some point, you. So most cancer patients, probably more than ninety-five percent, uh, will miss a significant chunk of uh, time yeah. at work or completely drop out of the workforce. Right. So yeah. that's truth. So. Um, it, in Germany, at least, um, you you have to have a um, uh, you know a, a piece of paper by your doctor that says basically this person is sick uh, okay. uh, for however much time it is, um, and then for six weeks in Germany, um, the employer pays it, and then afterwards uh, the insurance pays it, the salary, right? And until I, I don't know one or two years in, and then uh, uh, that changes. But so you don't have to tell your uh, employer. Uh, you know what kind of cancer you have, etc. Mm. But um, I think it, it depends on employers. That's such an interesting topic, right? Yeah. Because you would assume that um, if you were diagnosed with cancer, you just quit your job because you're like, okay, I don't know how much time I've left. But then, who covers your living cost if you don't have an income coming in? Yeah, I think probably yeah. in Germany, at least, the advice is to not quit your job when you uh, mm. get a cancer diagnosis because. Um, then you don't get paid anymore, right? Yeah. Um, uh, or, or you get, um, you know, social welfare, which you know, it's, like it's a discussion not, I don't want to get yeah. into. But <laughs> um, uh, uh, I think that's very different. It's a very country by country thing, yeah. right? You know, uh, in the U.S., um, you have in Germany also, but in the U.S., you have huge financial toxicity. Or the statistic that I read a couple of months ago on I don't know. It's a, Quarter or a third of all cancer patients that actually file for personal bankruptcy because of the oh, diagnosis. Oh, really? So it's well because they have to cover their own health care. Exactly. Costs. So healthcare in the U.S. Yeah. is very differently, let's say, mm -hmm. uh, covered by, <laughs> uh, and, and it's also way more expensive. Um, uh, yeah. So those are the different needs in different countries. So uh, our offering in the U.S. Uh, um, financial toxicity plays an even bigger role there. Yeah. I mean. I still don't really understand why you needed to be a digital therapeutic if you're just offering personalized content. So we have a therapeutic impact. We decrease yeah. depression, anxiety, fatigue, um, 
psychological distress, we improve uh, health-related quality of life, and that's the therapeutic impact that we have. And so in order to achieve that, we, we get data from patients, uh, we use that data to tailor the experience that they're yeah. getting inside the platform, um, and that together brings the need of um, uh, medical device certifications with it. Um, and that, that's one thing. The other thing is we wanted to be one. So even before mm. there was a DIGA law um, and when other digital therapeutics didn't want to be a medical device because they mm. didn't have to, we said, you know, we're in oncology. This is so medical as a field. Yeah. Like there's, you know, physicians, hospitals, etc., will not take you seriously if you come across more as a lifestyle offering. Yeah. Right? And I think... Uh, that's also true, and it also forces you to have some really strong standards in, uh, in terms of quality in what you offer. So all the content that we produce is you know, produced under the guidance or by experts, reviewed by us, and then again, if it's medically relevant, reviewed by oncologists. So this is super expensive, right? Yeah. But, but this is a way of ensuring that um, whatever you get in the platform is safer for those patients to use. And I guess you wouldn't be able to say that you had a therapeutic impact if you weren't essentially doing these studies to be a DTX. Yeah, so um, depending on which risk class you are and where you are, you can probably claim some things without having run full RCTs. Um, yeah. And um, I'm sure there's various uh, perspectives on standards uh, out, out in the field. Um, we always wanted to show clinical trials. I mean, it's, uh, it, it's, it's our way of showing that this actually works, right? And, and uh, it, it has the impact that we um, that we claim that we want to have, um, and that ultimately we also commercialize. Right? It's yeah. also a business. I mean, we, yes, we are um, we were built to improve the lives uh, of cancer patients, and that's our vision and guiding um, thought. But I think. You know, it's still a business and, and, and yeah. uh, there needs to be revenue and there needs to be uh, um, uh, salaries to be paid, right? And we cannot grow unless we have a commercial model behind it as well. And, and uh, I think with the, with the model that we are pursuing now, um, the so, two things go really yeah, well together. It's reimbursed by DIGA currently? No. So we were uh, yeah. the first DIGA in oncology. Um, we left that path uh, for various reasons. Um, What's the main one? Uh, commercial viability. Um, well, as in, like the the reimbursement scheme, did did it cap the the amount per patient or something like this? Yeah. So after some time in Diga, it materialized that there is basically a, a level of prices that's very constant, mm -hmm. no matter the impact of the of the digital okay. therapeutic in the clinical trial. So, so, there's like so a all ceiling. the other all the other yeah. offerings, they are all at. 250 euros plus minus or even a bit lower. So, so basically it doesn't matter if I'm building an app for oncology or for anxiety, general anxiety. Um, it's capped at the same cost per patient. So nobody would tell you that it's actually capped, but, <laughs> but, but nobody has achieved a higher price. Okay. It's also still early days, right? So I, and I think, yeah. I, you know, I'm, I'm, we left the DIGA path for, for, yeah. for, for that, that was, that was a, a big reason. Price is an issue, but also um, distribution. Mm. Uh, I think. Does it limit you to only Germany? Yeah, so Diga is an only Germany, Germany only 
uh, scheme. Um, mm. And I think the, the law that was put in place uh, back then was the absolute right thing. Um, and I think it's much more debatable whether the interpretation and there was the way it was operationalized. I, I don't understand right what way. you mean. So what so, do you mean by the interpretation? Yeah, so yeah. The, there was a law that the um, mm-hmm. Minister of Health, Jens Spahn, at the time um, uh, put out with his team, Gottfried Dudewig and, and others that were involved. And um, this law basically paved the way um, yeah. for allowing or actually ensuring that every patient has the right to get a digital therapeutic reimbursed by statutory health insurance in Germany. Mm. And so there's the uh, BFARM, um, which is the institute that regulates um, uh, uh, drugs and medical devices uh, in, in Germany, uh, or the government agency. Uh, it was upon them to come up with this um, mm. uh, more detailed out regulation, basically. So and it's like the Bible and the catechism. Kind of, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure they would love that parallel. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, and I think there's a lot of um, criticism of how that agency has handled and is handling mm-hmm. this. And there's, but to be fair, there's also a lot of pressure on the other side because you have health insurances that are highly um, deficitary in, in, in Germany right now. Um, so they have huge budget problems, um, mm. and they are not particularly eager to have um, you know every patient uh, to get to get uh, thousands of euros per per year um, reimbursed on top of what's already out there in terms of treatments. Right? So, um, and they claim that this is you know going to be a huge huge cost issue. I think that has not materialized uh, to their benefit, but to the detriment of the offerers of, of, the, of digital therapeutics, of course. Yeah. Uh, I think when this started, everybody was very excited about finally having sort of a standard way of getting this reimbursed. This is how it works and, and uh, yeah. a lot of momentum behind it. And I think um, a couple of years in now, there's a bit of a sobering, you know, how well does this really work? How, mm. how much revenue can you actually ge- generate with this? As, does this really warrant a large business that's VC-backed, right? and, and I think uh, that's where some question marks are coming up. Um, and I think it all, this strongly also depends, of course, um, the domain in which you are. Yeah. Right. Oncology has a lot fewer patients than obesity or diabetes yeah. or depression. And so, um, so a reimbursement model that's capped across conditions does not really make sense when you have different. Yeah. Digital so again, sizes. again, legally it's not capped, but, um, but yeah. Uh, yeah, yes. So that doesn't play into our advantage. Mm. Plus, um, it's very hard, like the the UX of active of getting patients to actually have this you to actually use this yeah. is so bad. And this is what I meant a little bit in terms of interpretation of the law. Uh, when they came up with this law, they probably didn't think, oh, let's make it so hard that almost nobody will get through this. That yeah. probably wasn't the guiding principle, or it definitely was the guiding principle. Um, and um, but what what has turned out is that you know, as a patient, if you want yeah. a digital therapy, you've heard of this. I want it. Uh, you have to go to your physician, uh, who in in many cases doesn't know about it, and they have to you know um, write a prescription for it. With that prescription, mm-hmm. you don't go to a pharmacy or somewhere else. You have to go to your health insurance, who are 
as we just debated, are yeah. not the biggest proponents of um, digital therapeutics. And yeah. by the way, there are exceptions to that. Some of them are much more accepted than others. Um, uh, and then a few days or a few weeks, or in some cases even more than a month later, you get an activation code that, that's, that's crazy. 13 digits yeah. that you can enter into your uh, platform. So yeah. that's not a great UX, right? And, and uh, if you think about it, you know, it, it, so this is a new class yeah. of therapeutics. If you get a drug prescribed by a physician and you have to wait four weeks to get it, you'd be pretty pissed at some, in most cases, right? Yeah, I mean, I mean like if you have to wait four weeks to get anything. Exactly. So, I mean, <laughs> this is 2023, right? Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's, that's, I think, where the system needs to and should evolve. Mm. Um, for us, um, there was another component in terms of distribution um, that it's really, really expensive to, um, to get to oncologists, um, right? To, okay. uh, to do ourselves sales in, into the oncology domain. A, because there's not the oncology domain, right? There's gynecologists, <laughs> yeah. there's urologists, there's hematologists, there are pulmonologists, there are dermatologists, and they all treat cancer patients, right? Yeah. So, and then you have hospital-based ones and, and private practice ones. So it's a very fragmented system, but it's also more than 100 different diseases, right? It's not, so that's, that's also natural, I guess, but um, uh, in this domain, you are competing um, in terms of attention by physicians, you're competing with the large pharma sales forces, right? Because they... But you went down the large pharma routes, essentially. So, yeah, but that's a different, yeah. so I was just at the, at the DIGA yeah. part where, you know, if we wanted to, to distribute mm. our digital therapeutic, and it would be at the price of 250 euros, you have the guys from all the big onco players mm. out there who have a margin of, I don't know, in some cases, hundreds of thousands of euros per mm. treatment um, that also want the same attention. So economically, that's not gonna be a great position yeah. to be in in the long term, right? And so um, our thinking was, um, we need to leverage that, right? We, we need to work with them um, and in oncology, you know, the cancer is treated by the drugs and the yeah. radiation or whatever and surgery. Um, and we can contribute to the best outcome of the, of the treatment. But I'm, let's say, not that visionary to say in X amount of years, the app is going to cure the cancer. Mm. That's not going to happen. It will significantly improve the outcomes. That I'm sure of. But I, I uh, think there will always be a diff another component. And that's different in obesity, right? Yeah. Uh, or in depression. Right? But I mean, congrats, because we're talking about how you can even build a VC-backed digital therapeutic, and you've managed to do it, um, one that is actually commercializing. Um, Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, but at the, yeah. but we're also still at the beginning of, of this, right? Uh, mm. uh, maybe not in terms of years into the company, but uh, you know, everything yeah. starts with an unmet need, um, with mm -hmm. tons of research and constant involvement of patients. You need to build a great product, you need to generate clinical evidence, and then you can start thinking about commercialization. Well, you should have thought about it before, but that's when you can start actually commercializing, right? Because that's when you have value in your hand. And that's really not something that started in 2017, that's a more, more recent thing. So, and overall, I think there's, um, it's a very young industry, right? There's, it's not. But we've known seen by we've seen companies with all four of these things, 
that have gone horribly wrong, right? Let's like think about like Parabio, for example. Sure. Um, and a lot of US companies who maybe are VC backed as well um, and have had to turn to, okay, now patient maybe has to pay model. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, who am I to judge a pair or uh, anyone else really? Um, I think you can debate whether um, opioid uh, uh, abuse or addiction is a great application for, for digital therapeutic because it's really hard to make that mm. sticky. Um, I think pair definitely paid uh, a lot of, uh, a large price for being a trailblazer in this industry. Right? They did a lot of work that others work. are, are yeah. benefiting from. Mm. Um, they also probably be, went in pretty aggressively, right? So if you yeah. raise, uh, um, if you do a spec of 1.6 billion on 4 million revenues, if that's the ratio that you think of, it's probably not the metric that they were uh, yeah. uh, pitching to Did investors. They, they, at the point, they, were they valued at 1.6 billion for 4 million of I think that, that's, that was the spec that, wow. uh, that they did. Yeah. So, yeah. And I mean, to be fair, some people bought it at the time and, and, and they are also smart people. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, there was reasoning behind it. And, and uh, I think you, it also takes some level of being a visionary to to, um, to pull that off and, and uh, also to um, build an, a new industry. You start somewhere, right? Mm -hmm. And then I think, um, yes, there are some examples like that out there, um, but it's also not the end of the industry. It's not that yeah. you know everybody's folding here. And I think you will see more folding, which is true across industry, by the way, because we're in an economic crisis to some degree. Yeah. Um, uh, but you also see thriving ones. And you also have to always remind yourself that uh, this is still the beginning of this industry. Right? It's, uh, new classes of therapeutics don't just come to life and, and overnight they are everywhere and successful. Uh, I think there's different angles that are being tested and, and models tried and partnerships, you know, tons of piloting happening. Uh, yeah. um, and I think we're you know, slowly getting to a point where things are consolidating a little bit, where it becomes a little bit clear of what works and what doesn't. Um, uh, but that's not a fast process, right? Anyone who, who is in or, or works in uh, uh, or invests into healthcare um, is probably highly aware that healthcare is not the quick play typically, right? Yeah, and then it, if you were like to expand into the U.S., is the market size now like higher? And the, yeah, I mean, the, the yeah. U.S. is, particularly if you look at drugs, right? Um, yeah. Actually, anything, but um, drugs, it's very uh, obvious. So I think large pharma companies do 50, if not more, percent of their global revenues typically in the U.S. In US. Depends on the company, of course, but yeah. it's... And it's not 50 or 60% of the people that live in the US, right? So um, uh, it's highly uh, disproportionate. And, and so it's, it's, for many reasons, the most attractive market to get into. It's also the most difficult one to be in, A, because it's super expensive, and B, because it's super competitive. Right? There are lots of other companies there that uh, yeah. are trying to, to do similar things to what you're doing. So um, yeah, but it, I think if you, if you have... Uh, the right things in hand in terms of clinical evidence, in terms of a working product, in terms of um, uh, regulatory aspects covered, uh, a commercial model that can scale in the US, um, uh, and ideally you have partners to, to uh, 
to already work with over there, uh, then I think that can work. And you need some money. Yeah. Well, now you have some, so that's mm. interesting. It's always debatable. I mean, uh, I think, you know, we, um, as VC-backed business, you're um, in constant mode of uh, fundraising, mm -hmm. of course. You're uh, talking to investors all over the, the world. Um, and you, you need to, of course, paint the picture of what, what, what will this be in five or ten years, right? And, and um, I think that's a very exciting yeah. uh, thought experiment of what this can get into. And, and uh, of course, you need to, at that point, also consider the competitive landscape, who is actually out there, who is doing what in, in the U.S. And in at least the, the, the past, let's say, two, three, four years, uh, it, it's always been significantly easier to raise uh, big rounds in the U.S. Mm. than anywhere else. And, and I think that's still true, right? I mean, valuations are, even though they've come down significantly, they're still higher, higher. in the U.S. Well, because you have a bigger market, right? And if, yeah. you can, if, you have, if you are the biggest player in something in the U.S., that's something else than being the biggest player in Germany. Right? There's just a lot more people, there's a lot more economic uh, momentum and, and um, potential there. So, If you had to uh, start again, would you still start in Germany? Yes, I mean, yeah. so I'm, I'm, I'm German, I know the German healthcare system, I mm. think we wouldn't been, I mean, actually, I lived in the U.S. before I came back to build this in Germany. So, uh, okay. but I, my network um, uh, was still better in Germany, um, and felt like the healthcare system. Even though I'd worked in healthcare in the U.S., uh, I still know the German uh, system better. Um, the personal reasons why I started in in, in Germany, um, uh, and so yes, I would I would still do it here. But it's a fair question. I think a lot of companies have to answer why. Uh, should probably ask themselves the question, why are they not already in the US? Yeah. Even though, I mean, you found the business where you are typically, right? You don't say, oh, let's let's move all the variables in this equation. I'm going to move to that place because it's the biggest market, but I don't know anyone there. Um, so um, I think that that's typically what happens. You have an idea, you build it where you are, um, and then you grow from there. But in healthcare, um, for many, many players, I think the US is the obvious most important market and um, in your in your journey from basically idea to now post series a um what's been like the most challenging part of it like what was like the one moment where you're like i um i like i might quit i don't know <laughs> like you yeah. know what i mean <laughs> an interesting question yeah. um so i think i was never close to, to quitting i think mm. The company went through tough times, and if that had gone significantly further south, um, uh, it wouldn't have been me quitting, but the company, the company quitting me. Quitting. <laughs> um, uh, but you know that didn't happen. So um, I think I think um, there are some stages in terms of when you grow uh, in in headcount that that brings complexity into it. So I think which stage? Know, I think there's sort of a phase in don't pin me down on numbers, but I think there's sort of a phase until maybe 12, 15 people where it's sort of everybody knows everyone really well. You can sit in one room and mm. the meetings that you have are anyways, everyone. Uh, uh, and, and so that that's a lot easier. Um, uh, and then at some point, you know, you do organize that a little bit, right? Uh, um, but but, but you like, don't, yeah. but you don't um, necessarily have a, a leadership team at that point, right? You kind of have department heads when you have one person working in that department. You can, but 
um, it, you can't do that for five, mm. five and then you uh, have a sort of a, a mid-management mid level. And, and I think then there's another point probably, there's a, there's a point probably around, um, I would say maybe 20 people where you should have thought about and maybe you should already have an HR function. An HR uh, function. Yeah, so, so someone taking care of HR. Um, okay. uh, that's not the founders or, or, or CEO or whatever. Um, and you were doing that basically. <laughs> uh, yeah, and, and yeah. I think it's a learning in hindsight. We probably yeah. should have done that earlier. Um, uh, and then um, I think there's a beyond then, I don't know, 30 or something where you will need to think about a, a strong second level of uh, management. Um, to really organize and get you know people yeah. who are really in the details of what the department is doing and, and what they're working on and to, to set the right goals, etc. And to professionalize a little bit in that sense, right? So working with OKR, whatever system you're using, mm. um, you know, to really make them work. I think you need strong owners of that. So so there's a uh, an organizational maturity, I think that's needed. And you know, our company is not that much bigger, so I can't talk about all the other stages uh, uh, further down the line, but I think that already puts you, puts you in place to then grow from there, right? Because I think once you have that organized fairly well, you can go to 100 or 200 technically, and I'm sure there are other problems that will uh, come along, um, uh, but putting structures in place when you know that you want to grow aggressively forward looking, um, uh, then I think that, that's well, Why do you need so many people though? Well, it depends on what you do. Yeah. I mean, you know, <laughs> no, what's WhatsApp like needed a, 17 people. But, yeah, yeah, for like a DTX, right? Because it's just like a digital app. Yeah, but again, it depends on what you do. So, yeah, mm -hmm. developers, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I don't know how to, where to start, but uh, you have a, a tech team with Q&A, mm -hmm. front end, back end. Uh, then you have a, we, we call that sort of core product. So there's product owners, um, user researchers, uh, designers, yeah. uh, etc. Uh, you have a, a content team or patient programs mm. call, so they actually develop the interventions um, and, and uh, all the content. That's not even all of this in-house, so we work with a large uh, body of uh, freelancers there who think about tone of voice, who think about mm. you know, uh, uh, formats, who may leverage generative AI in some of this. Mm -hmm. so, uh, uh, that's happening. Then you have a clinical team that does uh, both planning, forward-looking, what clinical trials do we do, um, uh, running the clinical trials as much as involved as, as we are, and then uh, publishing uh, them, getting yeah. word of You have marketing, uh, um, both HCP and um, so healthcare professional and patient-facing, um, uh, and, and general company marketing and PR. Um, you have business development in terms of pharma partnerships, uh, take that forward. You have regulatory, HR, administration, uh, and then you have management level. I, yeah. I think that, that's maybe everything in the, uh, in the country. So, you know, and in all of those roles, uh, you know, you start off with one person. We had, you know, a few years back, we had a person who was a, um, who did uh, all of regulatory uh, and was a coder uh, and I don't know, probably did something else and, and yeah. was sort of sysadmin for some office stuff. So that's great for initial phase. Uh, yeah. And I think that's also one big learning that um, uh, you go through different stages and you need different people in different stages, right? And, and uh, yeah. um, as you grow, what you need becomes much more specialized, of course. Mm. 
nothing, no rocket science behind this, but you start off with few people, you need to get a product out, so you need people who can do everything have more <laughs> of the product yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and then as you uh, as you go you have more specialized people who are you know very good at certain things on, mm. uh, uh, on, the, on the value chain basically. and what's the number one thing that you would recommend someone to do if they wanted to build a healthcare startup understand the system really well mm. So I think there are so many niches where people are now making tons of money in this industry, arguably not in all cases well-deserved. Uh, and there are cases where you have great impact on the world uh, and uh, with, with patients and, and even with the healthcare system where um, companies go bankrupt because they, they, they have yeah. difficulty in actually Capturing the value, mm. right, or, or commercializing. So I think that's that's a key thing. Understand the right partners, understand the industry, then, and understand how you're going to uh, uh, commercialize that. And and you know, in our industry, that's hard, right? The, the yeah. industry didn't exist 20 years ago, or arguably 15 years ago. Um, and so um, yeah, that, that's probably the one thing to get right. I mean, I also a, a close second, or even also first, would be. Um, uh, get people right. So I think get the you, team right. Yeah, you can only ever build something visionary great if you have great people on board. And I think we are in, in many cases extremely blessed to have wonderful people that, that we found wherever. And I think that's that was by the way one of the key reasons why we um, came to Berlin. Uh, we we originally were we were in Frankfurt, and at the time mm. I think it's a little bit different now, and uh, much uh, respect on what what is. Developed there, we started off in Frankfurt in Germany, uh, but I think a few months in, we thought, okay, this is probably not where we want to or can build this company because the um, people, <clears throat> the talent, were in Berlin. Yeah, you know, Frankfurt is is mm -hmm. very different in that it doesn't have a historical background of being a, a tech, tech city, yeah. much higher um, living costs, um, so it doesn't attract so many, um, let's say, young people, more, young people um, and I mean, it attracts young people into banking and consulting and, and you know, high-paid jobs, and, and that, that's great. And by the way, it's very black-white, mm. black-white, right? So, as I said, I think the, the, uh, uh, this, the, the city has definitely evolved uh, quite a bit and has a much more vibrant tech scene by now. But Berlin has always attracted, you know, more visionary and crazy people um, that yeah. want to change the world. Uh, and, and so um, that, plus it's a lot bigger, you can get by uh, with English really well in, in Berlin, so you, yeah. I think it, it, it made it easier. It's, it's become a bit harder. Housing is getting hard in Berlin. Uh, we see that a lot in new joiners that, that find it difficult to find an apartment. Uh, but overall, it still has a, a, a much to offer for uh, young talent, uh, and it's reasonably cheap uh, compared to definitely other capitals in Europe. I read this study that analyzed basically unicorn companies, right? Companies valued over a billion. And uh, they found something very interesting, which is like pretty much there isn't really a trend of why they succeeded. But in terms of the people, um, they had a significantly higher age gap between the oldest person and the youngest person. Interesting. 
And I wonder like yeah. what you think of that or how or if you've seen that in, in kind of Mika. Yeah. That's yeah, I am not aware of this the study. Overall, I think you know, being valued at a unicorn mm -hmm. just, just means that an investor thought that mm -hmm. uh, you're worth more than a billion. Yeah. But it doesn't mean you can sell at a billion, right? That's true. It, 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 Maybe it's a, it's, it, well, yeah. it's, yeah. a, it's a it's a bunch of people mm. uh, having a very high conviction that this company is worth mm. a lot of money. And granted, a lot of the unicorns probably are also real unicorns, and in, in yeah. they, they really represent that value. Um, uh, so, so I don't want to get into too much of a unicorn general discussion. But um, I think there's generally value in diversity. Yeah. So, in uh, be it from age. Gender, background, education, mm -hmm. uh, etc. I think that makes teams better, um, and, and also makes the product and result better at the end of the day. Um, so I, I would agree with that. Um, I think we've um, had gen we've hired for pretty professional people in general. So uh, yeah. more on the at least initially more on the uh, let's say experience side, and we've. As we had, you know, some some structures in place, we've definitely gone on to to hire uh, younger talent also. And I think that, that that was important. We probably should have started that a little bit earlier mm. um, in, in hindsight, but always smarter in hindsight. And it, you know, when you're looking into hiring people, and you, uh, it's not like you can build your uh, candidate. The candidate comes to you, right? Yeah. And what's the number one thing not to do when building a healthcare startup? Uh, I'd say don't do too many things. Uh, so I think uh, focus is key, and, and I probably sound like a textbook here or whatever blog article, but um, uh, I think that that's actually key. When we did yeah. both Diga and Pharma um, business models in parallel, mm. we found that difficult to get either of them really done well. Um, and I think that that it was good for us to focus on one, uh, and, yeah. and I think it's also good that it's farmer at the end of the day. Um, uh, so I think uh, you know you have so much complexity, anyways, in this. And I think if you figure it out for for one thing, and that really really works, then you can go on. We've been always approached by by companies say, "Oh, if you do this in oncology, you can do it anywhere. Why don't you mm -hmm. go into all these other indications?" Uh, but we really find we win our piece against you know big competitors that have raised. 10 times of what we have raised in terms of money. <coughs> so um, we win our piece against these companies because we have this focus. Yeah. Because we really understand cancer patients. We've had a lot of interaction mm. there. Um, and, and so I think that that was uh, key for us so far. Let's see where this takes us. Awesome. Um, and what's the number one impact you want to leave on the world with Mika? I want to ensure that every patient has the chance and is empowered to get the best possible treatment outcome so in cancer. And I think that's uh, it's doable with digital technology, and it's going to take a long time, uh, and it's hard, but uh, I think uh, we are, we're going to be the company that does that.